Y'all may be seated. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. I will echo the last song by saying, remember, remember that he is king. Remember that he is coming with his kingdom. Today's passage will deal with eschatology. This means the study of the end times, where we take time to read in Matthew 24 what Jesus has to say to us about the end of the age. Welcome. It's good to see so many of you here. It's good to see new faces. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here to open up God's word and learn together, to sing praises to our Lord and to fellowship together with other believers. We're so glad that you're here. If this is a new thing for you, if church is a new thing for you, just buckle in. It's going to be a a really interesting Sunday for you, but we want to make much of Christ this morning. We want to know him better so that we can be more like him, so that we can serve him. So that's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're talking about. You are welcome here. My name is Pastor Madam, the pastor of operations and worship here. Um, And it's one of my favorite things to do to open the word with all of you because we're learning together. This isn't me throwing information at you. This is us as the body of Christ learning and growing together. So open up to chapter 24 in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been journeying on in this, uh, this Gospel for the last two years or so. We will finish Matthew at Easter time, which is really exciting. We, uh, we, that was on purpose, uh, so we can see kind of the beginning of the story all the way to the end. We're excited about that. And here we have one of the more debated more confusing passages in all of Scripture, as far as I'm concerned. Okay? Be okay today with feeling a little uncomfortable. I mean that. Be comfortable today with some questions. Maybe you'll leave here with more questions than you came. Maybe things will be crystal clear, and I pray by the power of the Spirit working through me that we would understand the word better today. But let's have heaps and heaps of humility, that we are finite beings, okay? We're not going to get it all, but we pray that Jesus will illuminate the scriptures for us today. This passage is called the Olivet Discourse, which is a very smart way to say um, this, was, this was a conversation that happened on the Mount of Olives, Okay, and we can find this in the other script, in the other two other Gospels, Mark 13 and Luke 21. And as we learned last week, there were two verses that we did at the tail end of last week's sermon, and it's Jesus declaring that the temple will fall. The Jewish temple will be destroyed. So following that declaration, the disciples have some questions, as I'm sure you and I might if we were a disciple at that time. Um, Pastor and theologian Tim Mackey says that the temple for these people was the national monument, it was the national cathedral, and the national treasury, all in one. This was the center of life and religion for these people the center of culture for the Jewish people. I think that you and I would have some questions 
and maybe concerns if somebody walked up to you and said, Washington, D.C. will be laid waste in your lifetime. Some of you would applaud that, but that doesn't matter right now. I think it would bring up some questions of, wow, what what does all of that mean? But something interesting that we know about the disciples is that they're fairly nearsighted. If you've been tracking with us for quite some time, you'll see that the disciples typically like to see what's right in front of their faces, and sometimes they lack the bigger picture. They tend to obsess over the minutiae and lose sight of what Jesus is actually really there to do with the bigger picture. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? As soon as that happened, the disciples and Jesus got in a boat and they were crossing over the Sea of Galilee and Jesus warns the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples got around and they said, Jesus is really mad, we forgot our lunch, we didn't bring any bread. Okay, nearsightedness, right? They didn't understand what Jesus was really saying. What about in Matthew 16 when Jesus predicts his death? He predicts that he will die and he will suffer death on a cross. And Peter says what? Peter says, may it never be, Lord. He was nearsighted. He didn't understand the full picture. So the questions that are asked this morning by the disciples, I think, help us understand really what's going on in their hearts and minds. And we will see some careful teaching from Jesus today as their pastor to help them through the uncertainty that they have, but also Jesus, the prophet, that helps them see through the immediate events and draws them with faith towards the bigger picture. So our big idea today is going to be up here on the screen. Our big idea today is this, is that Jesus speaks pastorally to address our immediate questions and prophetically to cultivate faith in the big picture of his plan. So we have a lot of text to get through today. I promise that we will get through it. Okay, we're going to do this together. And please know that as we learn, people much, much smarter than I, much older than I, have spent a life, literally a lifetime studying this passage and others that deal with it. And to know that my study of this passage was informed by quite a number of these folks. For some of you Bible geeks, okay, here's some guys and people that aren't Bible geeks, maybe you're new to the Bible, here are some people that you really should listen to that have an amazing perspective on the Word of God, and a few of those are D.A. Carson, R.T. France, N.T. Wright, Tim Mackey, and R.C. Sproul. I think I'm going to go by M.S. Schwartz from now on, because it'll seem much smarter, like these guys with with two initials in the first name. But anyway, um, so just know if you're interested uh, as you're studying through this passage a little bit more on your own time, D.A. Carson is one of my favorite theologians. He's kind of, his his focus and opinion and understanding of this passage is kind of where I land um, most specifically. Again, all of these guys talk to one another and they share ideas and things like that. But just know Pastor Matt really likes what Carson has to say about this particular passage, if you're studying it further. 
But my prayer today is, again, that I would, with fear and trembling, bring you the word of God today with open hands and a humble heart, but that pastorally, we would get through this passage with not just more knowledge, more theological knowledge, but actually practical implication for what it means to serve Jesus here and now in 2021. We ready? I've like set this up for you guys, for everybody to think, oh my gosh, what are we getting into? But Okay, so before we read the first chunk, though, Let's read verse 3. Okay, the first big chunk of text we're going to read is 3 through 35, but verse 3, this is the disciples' questions. They ask this of Jesus. They say, Jesus, tell us, tell us when will these things be, meaning the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, so this is already up to debate. Is it one question? Is it two questions? Is it three questions? But we know that we're dealing with, with, with two focal points. The first one being the destruction of the temple, the physical earthly temple, and the sign of Jesus coming and the end. Those are the two focal points. I actually see the disciples' question as one big question because I know and understand that they're rather nearsighted and they must have thought when Jesus said the temple's going to be destroyed. They, I can only speculate, but probably they're thinking, well, that's the start of the end. The center of my world is going to be wiped flat and clean and it's going to be no more and destroyed. That must mean the end of the world. So Jesus, tell us, when will these things happen? When will be the end of the age? When will you return? They're kind of lumping all of these things in. You can, you can probably hear a little bit of panic in their voices as they ask these questions. So, as we read, we're going to pay attention to how Jesus answers the disciples. We're going to pay attention to how he speaks pastorally to address their immediate needs and concerns, and also prophetically to help them cultivate faith in the bigger perspective and bigger picture of his plan. So let's, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, let us be humble recipients of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me so that it is not my words but yours? I pray that we would just be more in love with Jesus after we hear this word and know you better. And just help us to be humble followers of you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Matthew 24, 1 through 35. Here we go. It should be on the screen. You can follow in your Bibles. Or you can just, sometimes it helps me to just close my eyes and listen. But here we go. So 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. 
So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet of Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that you, your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, as I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Who, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all of these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. A lot there, and we're not even done with the passage. So, is Jesus answering the first question about the destruction of the temple, or is he answering them about the end of the age? Yes. Here we go. Okay, so 3 to 35, I've titled this section of text, the birth pains, as Jesus talks about in verse 6. What are these birth pains? I think I have a list of some of them. 4 to 8, he says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come saying, I am the Christ. So, deception. They will lead many away. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes, natural disasters. But these are the beginning of the birth pains. And In other words, don't be, dis- don't be surprised. Don't be led astray. These things have happened in history and will continue to happen in history, this is not the end. Can we see these things happening today? Yes. Lies, deception. We have politicians and world leaders claiming to be our saviors. Wars, national unrest, natural disasters. 
Jesus says very clearly to expect these things, but the end is not yet. There are many different eschatological theories that say that these labor pains get worse before Jesus comes back. There are some people that say that these labor pains actually get much less and much better. Everything seems a lot better before Jesus comes back. However, that works out. I I don't know, and I'm not going to make a, a comment on that this morning, but I can clearly see Jesus in verse 6 saying, these things will happen. Don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. And the labor pain analogy is quite helpful for us, isn't it? From what I understand of labor pains, I've never experienced it myself, but is that they come in waves. And they have varied intensity depending on the point of labor. And they are necessary to bring a baby down into the birth canal. Now my wife will tell you from assisting in many births and catching lots and lots of babies that sometimes labor contractions don't have any indication on how quickly things are going to move. Sometimes it's days. In Graham, uh, my son Graham's uh, case, it was like 15 minutes. So we don't know when a woman is in labor how long it's going to take place. We can speculate, but we know that these things must happen, but the end is not yet. I think that's a really important analogy that Jesus gives us. It's very pastoral, isn't it? Jesus is using literal and figurative language to aid our understanding in the things that must happen so that we are not led astray. As he tells us four times in today's passage, do not be led astray. The end will come, but is not yet. Okay, so after verse 14, there is a a hard shift. may not seem like that to you, but studying this passage for a long time, there's actually this very sharp shift starting in verse 15, where we think Jesus is now talking about something Much more specific. Let's understand that. So verse 15 says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He's saying, let the reader understand how it was spoken in Daniel. We'll go over that. Earmark it. We're going to go back to there. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take within his house, etc., etc. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on Sabbath. There will be a great tribulation such as not uh, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Okay, so I understand this section five to 20, uh, fifteen to twenty-five approximately. I understand, along with many other biblical scholars, that this section is Jesus talking directly to the disciples' first question, which is, "When will the temple fall?" Tell us about that, Jesus. Okay. I believe that this section is Jesus speaking directly to the disciples' first question about the temple. Now, some understand him to be talking about a larger narrative. Okay, I'm open to that. But for today, let's focus on some clues that I believe and others, scholars, will believe that he's talking specifically about the destruction of the temple. Okay? The labor pains that we're in that Jesus talks about in 6 to 12, these labor pains, okay, The falling of the temple is one of those labor pains, a very large and acute 
labor pain. As D.A. Carson would say, the fall of the temple is a specific and acute birth pain that Jesus speaks about. It's a very large event that needs to be spoken of. And Jesus said this event would happen, and now he's explaining it in greater detail. Okay, why do I believe that he's speaking here directly to the fall of the temple? There's two major things. The first is the great tribulation described here in 21. And in verse 15, the, quote, abomination of desolation. Okay, the first one, uh, uh, verse 21, the great tribulation is understood by many scholars to be talking about the great and first Christian persecution under the Emperor Nero. Okay, and I'm not going to talk about the Emperor Nero today um, because uh, we don't have the time and there's children in the room. Uh, If you take three minutes to do a wiki search on the Emperor Nero, you will find that he was one of the more grotesque, more horrid uh, human beings to ever uh, grace the face of the earth. And he was particularly horrible to Christians. One of the first notable Christian writers, Tertullian, um, he was a second uh, century Christian writer, he names Nero as one of of the first great Christian persecutors. Under Nero's reign was there not only persecution and war, this was about 56 to 70 AD, not only was there great persecution on Christians, there was war, there was actually Jewish civil war, but also war with the Romans, uh, and then there was also a, a, a season of great famine. And then we know that in 70 AD, Roman general Titus will come in, he will level Jerusalem as well as the temple. This is a season of horrid existence for Jews and Christians alike, and you can read all sorts of these details in history books. This is not something that I'm coming up out of my head. This is documented historically very well by Josephus as one of those people that we can look back to in the history of all of these things, as well as the Bible. But you might be wondering about, this is actually a a hotly debated part of this passage, in the second half of 21, um, Jesus says, uh, for there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So we have a problem here, right? Because you may say, well, hold on a second. What about, what about the Holocaust? What about the fact that more Christians, more Christians have been killed in the last century than all of history combined, martyred for their faith, okay? Isn't there currently acute and severe persecution all over the world? Yes. We remember our brothers and sisters. Held hostage. Right now in Haiti. And Christian brothers and sisters. Fleeing the rule of the Taliban. So yes, there's horrid tribulation and persecution today, yes. So why did Jesus say what he said? Is he wrong? No. Jesus is a prophet and he is using figurative and descriptive language. This is how Jewish prophets spoke. 
Okay? We need to put ourselves in the shoes of those that were listening to Jesus at that time. And in fact, the phrase that he uses, quote, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be, is used 12 other times in the Old Testament, as quoted, 12 other times in the Old Testament, to describe some really big event, some really, really good event, or a really horrible event that has happened. Jesus is quoting back from the ancient prophets. Now, certainly to those that Jesus is talking about, this great tribulation and the destruction of the temple in this period of time, to these people, it would have seemed like the most horrible event to ever happen, nor could they probably imagine a worse one happening. All right, so we need to understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying and how he's saying it. Okay, pastorally, Jesus is helping his followers know that trouble is coming and specifically look at what uh, details to look for. So the Great Tribulation is one. Okay, the other one that's really specific to the destruction of the temple is in verse 15 when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. What is the abomination of desolation? Okay, this is a word that's used three or four times in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Uh, Chapters 9, 11, and 12, we can find him speaking prophetically about an event that will happen to abominate and desecrate the altar of the temple. Okay, he's using these large words Daniel is, to speak prophetically about an event that would, in fact, happen. We know in 167 BC, the temple altar was desecrated by the king Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king, who sacrificed pigs, the most unclean animal that Jews could think of, sacrificed pigs to pagan gods on the altar. This is the abomination of desolation that Daniel's talking about and what Jesus is drawing us to. Jesus, the prophet, uses a parallel to give us a larger picture that this has happened and this will happen again. And when you see it, because you know Daniel's literature, when you see it, flee, run. The trouble is at hand, the city will fall, the temple will be destroyed. When you see it, run. I pray that it's not winter, I pray that it's not the Sabbath, I pray that you aren't holding kids and having all of that stuff to do with, flee to the mountains, flee to the hills. Because we know prophetically, we know that Jesus spoke prophetically, we know that it came true in 70 A.D., This is a historical fact. That the general Titus marched into the temple and began sacrificing to the pagan gods of Rome on the Jewish altar. Desecrating the temple, just like Antiochus did, Antiochus Epiphanes did in 167 BC. How's everyone doing? You good? Would you tell me if you weren't? I mean, really. Like, no, stop, stop. No. Okay, let's keep rolling, okay? Because it gets a little stranger, okay? Verse 29 to 31, we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, 
And the powers of heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so here we have some more, but really specific, ancient Near East prophetic poetry. There's poetry here, okay? And this is going to help the disciples and us today have a larger and better picture and understanding of, the, of God's plan, what all of this craziness is about. Various prophets, actually many prophets in the Old Testament, when speaking about a world superpower or a large event like falling or being totally dismantled and laid waste, the prophets will describe these events in the way Jesus does, poetically, as the proverbial sky is falling. The sky is falling! This is a grand event that's never happened. Literally, the sky is falling. Okay, we'll look at two examples that Jesus is using the same type of language to, to uh, ping in our brains, or the listeners at that time, the prophets of old. So Isaiah 13.10, see, see if this sounds familiar. Isaiah 13.10, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Poetry. Amos 8.9, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Do you see what he's doing? He's echoing the prophets of old in their depiction of the fall of what great empire? Anybody know? You just shout it out. It's okay. Oh, it's up there. Darn. Okay. The fall of Babylon. Babylon was the greatest world power ever to exist, but they were also the most corrupt world power to ever exist. He's using connections here. He's saying to his disciples, the the temple, the center of your world, is going to come crashing down as though the sky is falling on your proverbial world and literal world. The temple and those that lead it have become corrupt and evil like Babylon. Remember last week, if you were here, the seven woes of Jesus. Jesus has nothing but scathing hard things to say about the temple and about its leadership, how it's become defiled and corrupt. This is his father's house that has become ruined by those that have taken advantage of its power and its glory. So what's happening here with with these prophetic sayings of Jesus, these poetic prophetic sayings of Jesus that he's declaring that God's judgment, just as it fell on Babylon, will fall on this earthly power center of God's temple, declaring that it it now needs to become taken apart brick by, by brick so that it may set the stage for a new rule, a better rule. Listen to verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven 
with power and great glory. More prophetic words from Jesus, more poetry from Jesus, who is linking us once again back to the Old Testament to Daniel 7. Listen, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Listen, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is doing? It's brilliant. These are all texts that the listener would have known and and understood. And he's been very literal with us, like, when when these things happen, flee. He's been very, very, very literal and pastoral to help us understand what's going on here and now. But he's also prophetically pointing us to God's big and large plan. He's helping, our, helping um, stir up our faith in his plan. Commentator R.T. France writes these words about verse 30 that we just read. He says, in Daniel, in Daniel 7, the loss of one power structure opens the way for another greater one that has a universality which a temple-focused system could never have achieved. The destruction of the earthly temple that happens in 70 AD leads to the new and better heavenly reign and rule of Jesus. As Jesus says in his earthly ministry, he says at the Last Supper, he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. He'll say in Matthew 28, 18, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now we know that from the reading of this text, in just the space of a few days, Jesus will face death, he will die, he will defeat it by rising again, and then he will return to heaven, which he explains to us. He will return to the heavens so that He may send the Holy Spirit on his people and that he would be seated on the right hand of the Father in all power and glory, effectively rebuilding the temple in three days, as he tells us throughout the Gospels. Tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. This is what's happening. These are, this is the language that Jesus is pointing us to, his listeners, to help us understand what is going on in the bigger picture. So when Jesus says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think we can see pretty clearly that that in fact did happen. The destruction of the temple, Jesus dying and raising again, defeating death and rising to the right hand, seated uh, at the highest um, right hand side of, of God in all power and all glory, these things do happen within the span of about 39 years. A generation in the uh, Old and New Testament speaks of about 40 years. So we do know that these things do, yes, in fact, happen within a generation. Please know that this section is also up to much debate, and there are many other um, really interesting and thought-provoking um, comments and understanding of the, uh, understandings of this uh, passage, and I really invite you to be a pilgrim on your own journey and understanding and go and seek answers and direction and um, 
And I would love to help you with that. I would love to have coffee and talk about eschatology. Any day, just call me up. We'll do it. Okay, so this is a challenging passage to say the least, but let's take a deep breath and let's recap what just happened, okay? Jesus says to expect these various labor pains, that they've always happened, that they will always be here until Jesus returns. We don't know what that time is, but in the meantime, he calls us to endure to the end, remain faithful, remain steadfast. And then Jesus centers in, the the microscope centers in on one particular birth pain, which is the destruction of the temple, and tells us all of the implications, uh, uh, current and eternal implications of what's happening, okay? All right, we don't know the end of the days, but we do know that this sermon will not go on forever, uh, and that we're actually actually, actually going towards a close here, okay? So take heart. uh, but we, de- we, we do need to look at a couple more verses to, to really understand some practical implication for us today. I think that's, I think that's uh, some of you really love that practical implication piece, but I think it's actually quite important for the complexities that we're working through today. Um, the hard stuff's over, okay, so, well, the more textbook stuff is over. So let's, let's look at 36 to 51 and see how Jesus answers the disciples in, in their second question, meaning... When's the end? When are you coming back? So here's 36. I'll read this quickly for us. It should be on the screen too. Okay. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect it, an hour he does not know. And he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus answers their question. Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus says some things that some of us wish that he was really specific. (laughs) But we do know two big things, don't we? The first thing we know is that no one knows except the Father. And the other thing we know is that his coming will come swiftly, just as the flood did in Noah's day. It will come swiftly. It will be unexpected So as the followers of Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, our application for this text today is this. 
We must live as those who are ready for the end. Verse 42 says, stay awake. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't become um, consumed with the world and its treasures and its trinkets. Stay awake and aware. In verse 45, Jesus says, be faithful. In verse 12, remember, Jesus says, stand firm. Know the scripture. Do life with other people who are helping encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Do what Jesus says. Live your faith. Be faithful. Because the time is not known to us. So we must guard ourselves. Jesus says four times. I think I already said that today. Jesus warns us four times in this passage to guard ourselves against deception and falsities. And today as your pastor, I want, to rem- I want to warn you all of two extremes that we could find ourselves falling into in these last days. Two extremes. I warn you to guard yourself against obsession and guard yourself against apathy. Many obsess about the second coming of Christ in an unhealthy way. Watching and waiting for Jesus to return, we, we ought to be doing that. But when we watch and wait for literal planets to align as a sign that Jesus is coming, that's obsession. People will predict and have predicted and speculate and obsess over the wrong things. Can I encourage you to reject these predictions? Because something that we do know for sure is that Jesus says, no one knows the day. So if somebody says, it's on this day, it's quite assuredly not that day. <laughs> All right? We've had a few recently, right? You got, anyone remember the Halley's Comet? I mean, that was just a little weird, but a lot of people thought this must be the end of the world. What about the 2012 phenomenon had something to do with pyramids and stuff? I don't I'm sorry, I didn't research this as heavily as I did the text. You're welcome. Um, what about the, the 2014 blood moon? Right, again, Wikipedia, you can say end of time predictions and it's like 20 pages long, okay? Uh, actually, one source, there's, there's, a, there's, a guy in, um, there's a guy in the country right now that thinks the world will end this year, which, great. Um, but, really the word, but really, we need to wor- read the words of Jesus, Okay? We won't know the day of his return until it comes, so we have to remain faithful to the word of God and what it says and not what we think it says or somebody that asks us for a credit card number because they have the inside scoop. Reject those people. Do not obsess. The day will come. Stand firm. Remain faithful. Jesus says that even the elect, even those that follow and know Jesus Christ and our, and our Christians, even those will be led astray. So be careful. Somebody says something, come and talk to Daniel or I, come talk to one of your um, brothers or sisters in the Lord and say, hey, I, I heard this, what, what do you think about it, okay? Jesus will come back. We do not know the day, so don't obsess, okay? But also guard yourselves over apathy, Guard yourselves from just throwing your hands up and saying, well, who cares, it doesn't matter, eat and drink and be merry till we die. 
It's a great song, but the lyrics are, are difficult. Um, Dave Matthews song, okay, for some of you. Okay, so um, being in a non-measured section of time can be laborsome. It can lead us to feeling like nothing really matters. It can lead us to, to dwelling too much in the brokenness of this world that just, who cares? We're all going to hell in a handbasket, and it's all over. It doesn't matter. Apathy, okay? As John Lennon wrote, living is easy with eyes closed. I recently uh, read a horribly sad article um, that if, if you want, just say, Matt, send me the link to that article. I'd be happy to do that. Um, my wife sent this to me. It's, a, it's an article about, it, there's a growing trend today amongst young people that are so fed up with how horrible they see the world being and having real no end in sight and having just being completely apathetic about the world and what to do about it, that there are more and more young people electing a premature sterilization. They don't want to bring kids into the world. They think it's actually their, their social duty to say, we don't want to continue the horribleness of this world. We're not bringing kids into the world. I'm going to read just a section of this to, to clue us into what apathy can do to us and what it has done to our culture. Clay Rutledge, an, ex- an existential psychologist at North Dakota State University, there's a title, who has studied young people's attitudes towards the future, there's a growing school of thought among 20-somethings that humans are the problem. It's not just that we've built factories and polluted the oceans and launched tons of garbage into space. It's that there's something about us, our psychology, our chromosomal wiring that makes it impossible for us to make things better. They're saying that the future isn't a good investment, Ritalidge says. And if there's no future, why would you be anything but hedonistic? Why would you donate to charities? Why would you try to make the world better or care about human progress? He adds that this generation has a sense that humans were a mistake. Yikes. But we aren't. Jesus has a plan and he has given us a mission. And so my encouragement to you all today the band can start coming back up, is that we yearn for the day of Christ's return, not by obsessing over it or, or falling asleep and putting our head in the sand, but that we actually yearn for the day of Christ and we join with him in the restorative work of the kingdom until he comes. Stay awake and be faithful. Jesus calls us to be hope For the hopeless, he calls us to be joy for the downtrodden. He calls us to share truth to the deceived and the confused. This world is crazy. Yes, Jesus says that we are in these labor pains. This world is not restored yet. But the work of the kingdom, the work of Jesus Christ, the mission that he brought 2,000 years ago, was that so we would join with him in this mission and that when we are agents of the kingdom that this will be so radical and so different and so attractive to the world that more and more and more people would be drawn to the heavenly reign of Jesus and would become a part of his kingdom while we wait. That the reign of Jesus and his plan to restore 
the world would be work that we do with him each and every day. That we would show the beauty of this world, that we would care for it, that we would care about the things that God cares about in a way that's submit, submitting to him, not the world, but submitting to Jesus as our king. That we would help people see the goodness of God's design and intention in this world and his people. They would help people see heaven on earth until it is fully brought And I yearn for that day. I hope you do too. So we are called to be on a mission. Jesus says, go. Make disciples of all the nations. We're called to do that work together as the church. In a period of time, we don't know how long it is. That's okay. We have a clear mission We have a clear goal. That's worth getting out of bed in the morning for. Why would you sell yourself for anything less than the call of Jesus our King? Let me leave you with Philippians 2, 13 to 17, and then we'll go to a time of communion. Philippians 2, 13, 17 says, the the Apostle Paul says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Listen, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud That in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Friends, stay awake, stay ready, be faithful. Jesus is King. He is coming. He's coming with His kingdom. Let us serve Him until He comes. Amen.